This is a very big question for the Fed. The problem I don't think is solved, especially if the physical twin actually exists. He said, no, I own this. So that's a very interesting and high-profile test case. The positive spin is that everything is instrumented, and the negative spin is that everything is surveilled. It looks like they're trying to tie it into their social credit system. The community aspects of it and the loyalty of the community. Welcome to the OrionX Download. This is a podcast where we discuss and simplify the big ideas in technology that are changing the world. What you hear is not, nor is it intended to be, financial or legal advice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Orion X Download. So a couple of weeks ago, we had a podcast on cryptocurrencies, and we talked about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We also previewed the Orion X Crypto Super 500 list that Steve Perno, my colleague, has been doing for three and a half years, and we've got better at scheduling this thing. So I have Steve with me. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hi, Shaheen. Great to be with you again. Awesome. So great feedback on the last one that we did. Thank you to those of you who listened and you let us know that you liked it. Please keep doing that. We had like half a dozen topics that we never got to that we wanted to get to. So the seventh edition of the Crypto Super 500 was released. Go to orionx.net slash research to see the actual report and the slides. There's no registration wall. You just click it and you go straight to the actual reports. So Steve, thank you. You've been, it's a lot of work to do this. And I love it that we have seven of those now that you've done. Well, it is a lot of work, but we make the process a little more efficient each time. Try and do some Kaizen on our spreadsheets. (laughs) So I've got it down to a a very efficient spreadsheet process as we build this list. And our input data sources, our basic methodology is we're looking for the largest cryptocurrency mining pools around the globe. And we've set an arbitrary cutoff on a minimum size for this list of $100 million per year of annual production run rate, or what we also call annual economic value. And with that cutoff, we end up with 41 pools And in principle, they could be across any cryptocurrency, but, and in the past, it's been as many as six or more in past lists. But Mm -hmm. for this list, we're down to really only three. So the economic product is very much dominated by Bitcoin and Ethereum. And in a distant third place, we have Dogecoin. What are the other three that are there, but not big enough to be included in this list? The other three are Litecoin, which has been around for a long time. Bitcoin Cash, which was a hard fork off of the main Bitcoin, trying to address scaling issues and larger block sizes, but it really hasn't been all that valuable over time. And then the last one was another hard fork off of Ethereum called Ethereum Classic. Right. This one is interesting for reasons we'll get to. So what is the evolution over the past three and a half years? What have we seen? What are the big events that have happened that are noteworthy? Sure. Well, just in terms of total economic value that's being produced, it's gone from single digit billions per year of crypto mining production to now about $45 billion across the six coins and about $42 billion across the top three coins. And if we just take the top pools, it's still $41 billion. So there's a lot of concentration in a few mining pools and primarily in two coins with uh, Ethereum having about 20 billion, Bitcoin about 20 billion of production at present. 
This is a compound growth rate over the past three years. Our first list was in November of 2018 of 96, 97%. It's uh, very, very rapid growth. It's also a bit noisy, but uh, the trend is very clear. Now with Ethereum moving to proof of stake from proof of work, which has been talked about for a long time and sounds like it might just happen, that's going to impact things. Well, this is all part of Ethereum 2.0, which is rolling out in a number of stages, some of which has been implemented. We now have two chains running. The original chain is a proof-of-work mining chain with an algorithm called ETHash and with block subsidy, which is now two Ethereum each block and then some fee collection for the miners as well. That model is going away. They're shifting to proof-of-stake. The other chain that's up is supporting staking. And so the new model going forward is that you have validators, and in order to be a validator, you have to stake quite a significant number of Ethereum, over $100,000 worth, 32 Ethereum, although it is possible to join the pools with a minority Mm -hmm. share and and still get rewards in an indirect fashion from the pool creators. My general view is that this makes things more centralized over time. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to see is at some point, the rug is going to be pulled out from underneath the miners. Currently, there's still a healthy Ethereum mining activity, but they've built into the Ethereum 2.0 transition something called a difficulty bomb. When that bomb will go off, we don't know exactly. They've just delayed it again. It was set to happen in December next month, and they've pushed it out to June. It's been pushed out several times already. But when they're ready and they feel like they've got the proof of stake up and going to their satisfaction, the developers will implement this difficulty bomb that rapidly increases the difficulty and pushes down the mining reward. So it will essentially shut down the Ethereum mining community, and they'll have to look for other things to do. They can mine other coins like Bitcoin, or they could continue to mine this Ethereum classic coin that I mentioned previously. Yes. That's that's going to stay with proof of work. That's really what I was trying to get at, is that is this possibly an opportunity for Ethereum classic for people who really like proof of work? They're all kind of good for what they need to do. Part of it is, what are your goals? Yeah, that's true. If your goals are just to support certain applications and smart contracts, perhaps you're not primarily interested in the value of your token, Mm -hmm. or maybe that's a secondary consideration to these other considerations. Whereas Bitcoin really is there as a store of value and that is available for payments, but is meant to be a final settlement asset. I think I'm going to come to this as part of the leftover FUD that we didn't cover last time. Back to the Crypto Super 500, what are the highlights of this edition that we just launched? The big thing that happened was the shutdown of mining, the ban in China. And that happened in late May and early June into mid-June. And essentially, most of the hash rate in China has evaporated. Not all. There's certainly some, some black market or gray market mining still going on, but the authorities have cracked down pretty hard. So if we look at the top 10 pools, the ones that are producing over a billion dollars a year, only one of them is currently listing China as its headquarters. There are some in the U.S. and there are a number that are just saying, well, we're global. You know, we have mining in various countries. We're not necessarily telling you where. The majority of mining, which at one time was well over two thirds at the beginning of this year, China had over two thirds of the Bitcoin mining industry. And the majority of it is now in two countries, the United States and Kazakhstan. Interesting. So Kazakhstan is a bit of an unexpected location, but maybe all of them are unexpected. 
what I, is driving the yeah, approach there? I think it's different between the U.S. and between Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is a neighbor of China, so one can just uh -huh. put miners onto trucks and just ship them across the border. It's a car ride In away. principle, <laughs> right? A difficult truck ride, I'd say. Uh, the real self road, right? <laughs> yeah. But they also have very cheap power. Mm -hmm. So that's good for Bitcoin mining, although unfortunately a lot of that power in Kazakhstan is coal-based power. So that's also a concern. In the United States is quite different. There's a lot of investment capital that's come into cryptocurrency mining and Bitcoin mining in particular this year. And uh, West Texas is a favorite spot because electricity rates are very low. West Texas has a lot of wind power as well as some mm -hmm. solar power, as well as some very cheap natural gas-based power. And it also presents the opportunity for capturing natural gas in the field that otherwise would have been flared and is actually quite a bad polluter of the atmosphere since it's releasing methane that's mm -hmm. over 25 times worse than CO2. So you can place miners in a container and put that right in the field next to the wellhead for natural gas and just instead of it being flared into the atmosphere, you just capture it to operate the miners. But the, the money that's coming into... The space for U.S. investment capital and other Western investment capital is interesting because some of these companies like Mara, M-A-R-A, and Riot, R-I-O-T, are the symbols for those. They're publicly traded. They have decided to hold on to the Bitcoin that they mine. So they raise fiat. Interesting. They raise investment capital as fiat, and then they're holding on to most of the Bitcoin that they produce in expectation of its long-term value increase. I see more and more, I guess, organizations who have the wherewithal to do this, to just buy and hold, and if they need cash to go borrow against it, right? That's the emerging best practice for those who can afford to do that. The biggest example of that is, is MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor. Yes. He's been building up his treasury, and he's been issuing convertible bonds at very low rates, and they're convertible into MicroStrategy stock. And so he, you know, he can get 1% or 2% as the cost of his coupon, and then he's invested that into his Bitcoin holdings, which are now up to about $7 billion. Brilliant. You know, his profits are above a couple of billion, and he's just been doing this for a year, essentially, a bit over a year. Well, he's the guy who really ignited or reignited Bitcoin last year this time, didn't he? He's one of the main ones, yes. Square has some, there are a number of companies now. Priceline, wasn't it? The, yeah. The mining companies, Priceline was early. It's still a relatively small number, but growing. The mm -hmm. most interesting case now is a country, El Salvador, and they've just announced this week, actually in the last day or two, that they're issuing Bitcoin bond. And what that is, is they're raising $1 billion in fiat. They're going to keep $500 million of that in the form of Bitcoin. They're going to use it to purchase Bitcoin. That ends up being backing or reserve behind the bond. And then the rest of it they'll use for infrastructure in a new city that they're setting up at the base of a, a volcano. And uh, that is a geothermal power source, and they're directing some of that power towards Bitcoin mining. Very intriguing. I think that's something that a lot of people are watching. And if it succeeds, it might just be a blueprint for others to do something similar. Let's move to some leftover FUD. So one thing you mentioned was Bitcoin being a store of value. And one fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's put forward for that is that it's too volatile, that what kind of a store of value is this if it's going to go up and down 15, 20% over a week, which you know it's prone to do, even though long-term it's been going up. What do we say to that? Well, first of all, we acknowledge the volatility. It's real. 
it's significant. And that is kind of the cost of the opportunity. That's part of the risk-reward trade-off. So what that does is that informs how you should approach it in terms of your personal investment portfolio or if you're a company as a treasurer, how much are you willing to risk in an asset that's more volatile than others? The volatility has been gradually increasing over time, but it's still very large. And as an asset class, it is the most volatile asset class, but it's also the highest return asset class. I mean, it's been running over 100% annual return on average, backward looking. I think forward looking, it's not going to be quite that high. It's going to be maybe more like 50 or 60% based on some of the modeling that I've been doing. But with that, as more and more money comes into the asset, that's going to damp out some of the volatility. But it will remain for some time because you have futures markets and you have traders that go in there with leverage and you have people that go in with short positions. You have things that happen in futures markets like trying to you know, knock out other players by driving the price here or there. Uh, so we expect the volatility to continue and therefore you know, one just needs to take A, a long-term time horizon and B's size of position relative to the risk that you're able to tolerate. Now, I want to pause here and remind everybody that our conversation is not financial or legal advice and should not be taken as such. And it's basically the research and analysis of the market as we see it. So please have that caveat in mind as you listen. So the next item is immutability, that transactions are immutable and mistakes happen, losses happen, and that's like not a good thing. What do we say to that? Well, all of the high profile losses have happened on exchanges. So that's where the vulnerability is in wallets on exchanges or occasionally just fraud on exchanges, certainly more so in other cryptocurrencies than in Bitcoin. But the most famous was the Mt. Gox losses that happened with an exchange established in Japan. And these losses happened back in the 2014 timeframe, if I recall correctly. And they're recovering only a small portion of that. So there is a danger in some exchanges of hacks now. Exchanges have gotten better with their security. They've gotten more oversight. They're much more regulated than they used to be. And typically, they'll have insurance. And so the hacks that we've seen recently, the exchanges have normally reimbursed clients if clients were affected. But it's a better idea if you transact on an exchange to then move most of your assets or a substantial portion to a private wallet uh, mm-hmm. that, where you control your own keys. Hacking the Bitcoin blockchain itself is extremely difficult. It becomes exponentially hard to roll back one or two or three blocks of transactions. The deeper you wanted to roll back, it would become exponentially harder. And it's really never happened. And there have been over 700,000 10-minute blocks laid down on the Bitcoin blockchain. And really, every day that passes, it just reinforces its security and gains more confidence. So finally, one thing we didn't cover, I don't think we did, was simultaneously, I've heard it in both ways. I've heard it that it's not decentralized, that this is still too centralized. But I've also heard it that it is decentralized, that, you know, (laughs) kind of whatever it does, it can have a negative trade-off, I suppose. So let's talk about both of those sides of the coin. Sure. And let's do it for Bitcoin and for Ethereum as well. For Bitcoin, issue around centralization was primarily on the mining side. And we had a situation where most of the mining was in China, and you had four largest pools at any one time would account for more than half of the total hashing power. 
So in theory, if they were all to conspire together, then they could mine an alternative chain, what's called a hard fork, and maybe put fraudulent transactions or double spending transactions into that alternative chain. Now, in, in practice, they're competitors. And so, you know, this never happened. And now that China has banned mining, uh, the mining hash rate is becoming more dispersed than it was. Right. And secondly, the concentration was never quite as high as it seemed because a pool might have been based in a certain country, but the hash rate could be coming from many locations because some guy sitting in his mom's basement can contribute his mining rig to almost any pool, and then he'll be rewarded on a proportional basis for his hash rate. So the hash rate is collectively coming from from many locations. And now, according to Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, they say that 35% of the hash is in the U.S., 18% in Kazakhstan, and then spread out across many other countries. So there are more and more players. Now, this other part of this is that the ledger itself is not controlled by the miners, it's controlled by full nodes. Right. Anybody can run a full node. You only need a $300 ARM-based box to hold the full Bitcoin ledger and to keep it in sync. And there are over 10,000 of those full nodes distributed around the world. So that's Bitcoin. Ethereum is becoming more centralized because they're moving from the proof of work to the proof of stake and to this validation scheme. And the people that hold the ledger and commit transactions will be only amongst this validator pool. And as I mentioned before, it takes at least 32 Ether just to, to be an official validator. Yeah, that's a lot. That is a lot. Since it's over $4,000. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking 128K. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was pushing almost 5K just a couple of weeks ago. Right. Let's now move to another highly popular item, and that's non-fungible tokens, NFTs. And I recall that last year when we did our podcast, we were predicting that this was going to happen in 2021, but I wasn't thinking that it was going to happen in like January 2021. <laughs> I thought it'd be more like November maybe, and in the event yeah. it was like way accelerated. So what are NFTs? What is real? What are the complexities? And let's kind of share some perspectives here. Sure. It's been huge this year. I mean, it's the biggest news in cryptocurrency more broadly for 2021 is the rapid growth of NFTs. An NFT in principle could be any kind of uh, document or file or image or media file that's attached onto a blockchain. And it's a certain form of smart contract. And they're typically produced on Ethereum, but now there are other chains that are becoming popular like Solano and Cardano and uh, mm -hmm. Avalanche and a number of others. And people will create an item, mint an NFT or create an NFT, and then they'll put it up for auction typically. And the rights associated with it are kind of unclear and may vary from case to case and from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. The most popular classes of NFTs right now are art. I guess you would call it postmodern art. A lot of it is yeah. like crypto meme art category. And then the other most popular category is uh, sports related. NBA, in fact, has this Top Shots, which has been very popular. So short video clips of you know basketball getting dunked, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So people will buy these and say, okay, I own this NFT. But in the case of these, this crypto meme art, you know, it's just a JPEG. <laughs> right. So what do you really own? So to me, NFTs are about programmable rights management. What you own is the rights to something. And that is essentially a deed to something, except that that deed is not necessarily 
static. It could be dynamic. It could be programmable. It could change according to this, that, or the other. But as you mentioned, the critical point is exactly what rights are you buying? I think this is a topic that is solved technically, but it's not communicated or understood. And I think the laws also vary along every dimension and in every geography, but type of asset, where the location is, where the geography, the jurisdiction is, what is the duration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think right there, what that to me means is that the concept is quite valid, but buyer beware. You need to be careful what exactly you're buying and whether it's worth your while to do so. So we have a very high profile case right now. Have you heard about the Quentin Tarantino case? I have not actually, not that one. Well... He has decided to make NFTs of his movie scripts. Okay. For Kill Bill. Pop fiction, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how the many different NFTs, and, but uh, he owns the original rights to the movie scripts. I mean, he, he wrote the screenplay, right? Right. But the theater is suing him. Miramar, uh-huh. I guess, was the, the distribution, the film's producer uh-huh. and the distribution. And he's being sued by them saying, oh, no, we, we own this. No. And he's saying, no, I own this. So that's a very interesting and high-profile test case. This is a very good point because like when you buy real estate, there's a title company or there is some sort of a legal analysis that ascertains that the person selling it to you has the right to sell it to you. So that may or may not really exist. Yes. An artist may sell an NFT and say, well, I'm reserving this right. You can't make a T-shirt with that, etc." But I think this maps out also where NFTs are headed. I mean, you brought up real estate. But we're also going to see NFTs coming into security markets and other financial use cases, probably in real estate and so forth. I mean, why not just, we've already talked about in the past security tokens, right? Right. And NFT approach can be used for security tokens. We're already seeing some cases where bond trading has happened over blockchains, including here in Thailand. There was uh, something that was done with the banks together with some banks in Hong Kong and government approved government bonds. So we can see many more sectors that could be adopting the NFT technology. Yeah, totally. I think that the concept is highly valid. If you come across a use for NFT that doesn't look like it makes sense, well, maybe it doesn't. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that there aren't valid use cases for it that exist or will emerge. The old examples were like a concert ticket. And if you have that as an NFT, well, that's exclusive to you. You can sell it and it's all kind of seems very valid. Another example I've heard is buying the right to look at some important piece of art in private for 15 minutes on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Now, that's another thing that you can buy that can be exclusive to you that has real value. And if you can do it electronically, it might just make it easier and more secure, etc. My summary of NFTs is that, A, it needs to have unique value, which also means it cannot be copied without exposing the copied nature of the copy. And I think that's a problem that's partially solved via watermarks and timestamps, but it's actually kind of hard if there's a physical twin. So that leads to the second item is that you need assured authenticity, including original ownership of the item. And this problem I don't think is solved, especially if a physical twin actually exists. And physical items really cannot be insured, even with a chip added, it's really hard. And then it is programmable rights management, as I mentioned before, and that's solved technically, but not communicated well. Then you need an immutable decentralized transaction, and this is conditionally solved if there is sufficient participation to make it decentralized. And then finally, an important part of NFTs is the community aspect of it and the loyalty of the community. 
And I see a lot of NFT enthusiasts who really are in it for the impact that it has on original artists and creators. I think that's a non-trivial aspect of it as well. That's really the motivator. Certainly for the ones that we've seen, the motivation is to be part of that community. Maybe it's the Bored Apes community, which is a crypto community. And so you want to be part of that meme or it's a sports community. You're part of that team. And so you're willing to buy not just shirts and caps, but an NFT that could be a video clip. And there's a lot of pride of ownership, shall we say. So you want to be able to tell your buddies, okay, I own this. (laughs) I own this video clip. Right, right. Or I own this board, you know, board ape number, such and such. Yeah. There's even a whole movie being produced as an NFT with programmable rights and smart contracts. And and all of that kind of makes sense because, you know, it governs who gets what, when, over what period of time. And now you still need to know what you're getting into. But the alternative perspective is that, well, that's nothing new. When you do an actual movie, you still need to know what you're getting into. And all those legal contracts are also complicated. So what we're seeing is the monetization of communities Mm -hmm. in a new way and the creation of some form of currency that enables that community. Right. It's sort of back to the extraction and assignment and transaction of value and doing that at a low cost and in a way that fits the governance of the community. Exactly. All right, let's switch to central bank digital currencies. Let's spend three, four minutes. We may have to come back to this one. Let's talk about CBDCs. Why CBDCs? Why not just stable coins? Well, the central banks are trying to figure out what to do. I mean, they see this onslaught of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency more broadly, and they're saying, hey, we have to stay relevant, you know? I have sovereignty here, excuse me. (laughs) Right. We we have national fiats to support, right? Or in the case of the ECB, we have the euro, 27 countries, whatever the number is, to support. Also, though, you have this macro backdrop of where we've been in these low interest rates, zero interest rate, negative interest rate environments, slow growth environments that have been very challenging for the central banks. So they see CBDCs as maybe addressing both of these things. One is how can they compete or respond to the cryptocurrency alternative, shall we say? And two, what do they do to stimulate their economy? So the obvious thing is to have a digital version of their own currency. I mean, money's already digital. It's stored in computers. But to make it less, somewhat less centralized, they're going to keep control centrally. Mm -hmm. But they'll distribute it perhaps through their banking system, through payments processors. One big question is whether or not they have direct wallets between their population and the central bank. That's one of the most pressing concerns that they face. Currently, everything operates in a hierarchical model where central banks and banks have their own money that we don't ever see, that are bank reserves, etc. And then we have our regular national money that we all deal in, in terms of non-bank businesses. So they see some opportunities in terms of economic management, interest rate management, perhaps, as they try to respond to challenges in the economy and and also in support of fiscal policy. If the treasury of some country decides they want to bestow favors on their citizenry, this is another path. We saw in the U.S. with pandemic response, it was rather difficult getting the money out to people. Mm -hmm. You know, they did it through the IRS, but in principle, you could do it through the Fed, right? If you had a Fed coin or some sort of uh, Fed-managed digital dollar. Now, your other question is, why not stable coins? Most of stable coins are denominated in U.S. dollars. So this is a very big question for the Fed. And, and they're looking at both sides of it. They, they may just decide to do that and to go the stable coin route 
and say, all right, we will allow, uh, we'll provide a, a portal <laughs> between the commercial stable coins and the Federal Reserve banks, which they don't have today. In fact, they have trouble getting support from the commercial banking community. But if that's going to happen, then they will have to regulate these stable coins more. And they're already making noises about that, saying, well, you look like a money market. You're going to have to follow the same rules that money markets do. You're going to have to prove that you hold the reserves, that you have mm -hmm. full backing for these stable coins. Tether, USDC are two of the best known. And there's been a lot of controversy about what backs Tether. They may have a lot of Chinese commercial paper, for example. Well, given the Evergrande and real estate crisis over there, how, how stable mm -hmm. is the backing mm -hmm. behind that? Well, another piece of it really is, I mean, this goes back to just the fundamental benefits of doing something in a digital way all the way, not just translated to digital. And that's instrumentation. That's the positive spin is that everything is instrumented. And the negative spin is that everything is surveilled, <laughs> that you can, mm -hmm. you can document it, you can track it, you can mm -hmm. trace it, you can see you know, who did what to it. Now, the positive side for a central bank is econometrics, that you have real-time information about the state of the economy because it's all been tracked from the beginning because you just started the whole thing from the beginning. I guess the negative side is that you have real-time information about everything, right? <laughs> so what's the, what's <laughs> right. the trade-off there? Well, the trade-off there is, you know, who's in control? So China is the furthest along of large countries with stablecoin that's a CBDC and it's a digital yuan and they call it the DCEP, uh -huh. EP being electronic payments. And apparently they've rolled out wallets to 10% of their population. They've had a bunch of trial activities in various cities and provinces and they're really trying to get this thing going by next year around the time of the Winter Olympics. They want it to be one of the options there. And it looks like they're trying to tie it into their social credit system where they monitor everybody's behavior. They monitor the spending patterns. People use, do all their payments off of their mobile phones in China using Alipay or Tencent. And one presumes the Chinese government is monitoring all of this and that uh, people may find that all of a sudden their wallet has been right, right on. Or, I mean, one positive side of this is that it is a little bit easier to implement policies that impact every citizen, especially this has been brought up in the context of UBI, universal basic income, that if everybody had a wallet with crypto, you can just like, boom, do an airdrop and you're done. Uh, but of course, the counter argument is that, you know, what if your social credit disqualifies you from that? <laughs> you know, you jaywalk too many times. They'll start out by just taking the fines out of your wallet. But Eventually, they'll just yeah. No more wallet. UBI for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on on that note, <laughs> we can <laughs> we can conclude this session. Thank you, everybody. We're going to come to you again because this set of items is endless. And in fact, another episode we're going to want to do in the next few weeks is about quantum computing because we're also tracking that. And certainly with cryptography, it impacts the whole crypto world as well. We probably want to remind our listeners that this is not investment advice. In fact, it's not really any advice of any kind. <laughs> but, <laughs> but thanks for being with us. And thanks for remembering that, as I like to say, all kinds of walks down Wall Street are random. <laughs> any closing thoughts, Steve? It just gets more and more interesting and complex and diversified. There are over 13,000 cryptocurrencies. Incredible. Most won't survive. But if you look at the top ones, they're probably going to be around for a while. But the rankings change rapidly too.
I think the biggest question going forward is what happens with Ethereum as they switch off a of proof of stake? That's the biggest question for the next report that we'll do in the June timeframe. That's right. And the next halving is still some ways off, right? Yes, that'll be in early 2024 for Bitcoin. Excellent. Lots of exciting things guaranteed to happen. Thanks for having me on again. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot, everybody. See you soon. Cheers.